This is Macro Horizons, Episode 3, Powell's Possibility, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and John Hill to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 28th, along with the shameless knockoff of a time-tested talk show gimmick. Please enjoy, or endure. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Now for a quick update on our current thinking, we're going to cover the top 10 reasons we're saying 3%, thanks for the memories. Coming in at number 10, Trump shutdown. The full economic impact of the shutdown isn't known, probably won't ultimately be that big, but the disruption in terms of data flow and the information that the Fed has to make policy decisions are going to continue the flying blind state of monetary policy. At number nine, we have the Fed's nine rate hikes. Since the Fed began tightening monetary policy this cycle, they have delivered nine 25 basis point rate hikes. Looking back historically, in tightening campaigns since 1985, the average has been nine moves and the average size has been 28 basis points. Declaring mission accomplished isn't so far-fetched. Turning to Beijing for lucky number eight, China just published its weakest GDP figures in a decade. While still strong by Western standards, the implications for global growth are clear. Turning to the domestic lucky number seven, we have a decline in business sentiment, which was quickly followed by a turn in consumer confidence. A sad spender is not a big spender. Coming in at number six, the nature of neutral. You'll know it when you've passed it. More practically, if inflation continues to underperform, real rates will drift higher. Therefore, the economy might effectively be tightening for the Fed. The fifth reason that we expect 3% 10-year yields are a thing of the past is the European economy. Germany is flirting with a recession. There's been economic slowdowns in a variety of different nations within the Eurozone. With the ECB now finished with its bond buying program, we expect monetary policy in Frankfurt to become particularly interesting. Number four, the effects of monetary policy occur with a 12 to 18 month lag, and Powell is coming off of a year of 100 basis points of hiking. Wait long enough, most problems solve themselves. Coming in at number three, traditional signs of fallout from higher policy rates are already being seen throughout the U.S. economy. Housing is an obvious early warning sign that monetary policy might have gone a bit too far or a bit too fast. Again, we're not anticipating a near-term rate cut, but a longer pause than many in the market expect. Coming in near the top at number two is the unwind of the Fed's balance sheet. 
while initially estimated to be the equivalent of roughly a 25 basis point rate hike, the market has now become far more concerned that as the Fed continues to drain the punch bowl, some of the underlying weakness will become far more evident. And taking number one on our list of reasons to worry, stocks. The correction in global equities has led to the striking of a Powell put. We don't say that to be as glib as it might sound. The fact of the matter is that the correlation between volatility and financial conditions and the correlation between a drop in equity prices and a spike in volatility means that in effect, when we have big sell-offs like the ones that we've seen, the equity market is getting in front of any further Fed tightening. This also implies that the Fed's terminal rate for this cycle and presumably future cycles will be lower than one might have thought when the Fed began tightening in 2015. And that wraps up our top 10 reasons why we don't think we'll see 3% 10-year yields anytime soon. A range trade makes sense, a bit of a backup as the economic data improves, and as always, there'll be a swing in the sentiment from risk on to risk off, which will play out in rates. Nonetheless, at this point, we would view any return to 3% 10-year yields as a buying opportunity that brings in not only domestic interest, but also participation from major overseas accounts. Thanks, Ian. So the Fed's January meeting is on Wednesday. Are there any particular tweaks to the language or anything you're looking for in the newly introduced press conference? And how does that set the stage for March and kind of the path of policy going further into 2019? Well, January was never really on the table for a rate hike. And so this concert of Fed speak that has resulted in a much more dovish tone combined with this idea that the Fed wants to be patient suggests that it's really the March meeting that matters. So if anything, the Fed will further refine the communication around this idea that the Fed will pause. And again, this means it's a March pause, not a January pause per se. I'm still of the mind that if you pause in March, you're certainly not going to go in May because that's only a six-week window. What then becomes more important is do they want to pause beyond June into September, using the 2016 experience as a guide, we might assume that we're simply going to be paused until December of this year. And so we will see how committed they are to this pause notion. My assumption is if they actually put the word patience into the statement, that that would create a, a situation in which clear signal, going to be on hold for a while, but it also allows them to take the word patience out if and when they decide to make another move uh, towards higher rates. Yeah, I think one thing to remember is in the last statement, the committee was very explicit that uh, they judge that some further gradual increases in the target range are justified. But it's worth remembering that that was, you know, almost a month and a half ago. And financial conditions have tightened notably, and we've seen a pretty stark shift 
in communication coming out of committee members since then. And so there are a couple ways this could manifest itself. One, to your point, you could see them adjust the language, introduce data dependency, introduce patients, but also probably adjust the phrasing on further gradual increases. And the reason why is, you know, flexibility. The uh, variety of different members have noted that we don't necessarily know that we're going to continue hiking rates. It's going to be data dependent. The other thing that I'd really flag is back in December, I was a little bit struck by the committee doubling down on the balance of risk being roughly balanced. And one of the reasons why that was surprising is at the time, there were pretty glaring negative signs growing in some of the global economy, slowdown in Europe, trade war, dot, dot, dot. And since mid-December when the FOMC occurred, we've had a variety of things break towards headwinds for growth. And that includes the U.S. shutdown, and it also includes further deterioration in some economic data. A question that we've been hearing a fair amount is, what about the balance sheet? When do they stop running the balance sheet down? And from my perspective, obviously, this is a, this is the, the next pivot in terms of shifting monetary policy to a more dovish stance, the communications from the Fed suggest that whereas we believe the entire process to be completely on autopilot when the the runoff was introduced, there's clearly a, a bit more variability around it. It would be difficult in my mind, at least from a signaling perspective, for the Fed to cut rates before actually ending the balance sheet runoff. So how would you expect them to provide communication on the balance sheet? Do you think this is something Powell might discuss in the press conference, or would you expect or anticipate something to be in the minutes or even in the most explicit form in the statement? I think that as we get closer to the point where a decision needs to be made, we would see, we've already seen it in the minutes. We've already seen it from Fed speakers. So perhaps something as specific as addressing it in the press conference before it ends up in the statement or a combination of the two. It's really unclear, frankly. And this is one of the key policy communication challenges that the Fed faces in the present environment. Yeah, I'd agree that the the challenge is notable because as of now, I don't even have high conviction as to whether some adjustment on the balance sheet would be shifting some of the reinvestment schedule, uh, tapering off, shifting the composition between treasuries and MBS, or you know just a full stop. Though uh, I think a full stop might potentially indicate more angst or concern around an economy with that's growing above trend with unemployment below neutral. And John, I know you've talked a lot about in the past the benefits versus negatives of the Fed carrying more on its balance sheet versus running down to lower levels. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you're thinking about that? Yeah, absolutely. The The idea that we're going back to the pre-crisis framework, I think, has been resoundingly pushed back against. At this point, it's more a question of how many hundred billion we're going to have in excess reserves going forward, rather than you know, are we going to really try to push it? And one thing that I've really been paying attention to is some communication shift out of committee members since the December FOMC. It really seems like Powell's comment 
autopilot, that the balance sheet was on autopilot, uh, risk assets did not like that whatsoever. And that tightened financial conditions more, uh, would be my guess, than a lot of the committee would have preferred. So the idea of introducing flexibility in the balance sheet due to nonlinear tightening of financial conditions kind of introduces the risk that were we to see the VIX spike, were we to see equities sell off, spreads widen, however you want to discuss financial conditions, you could see an adjustment on the balance sheet side sooner rather than later. So said differently, uh, you don't necessarily need to draw excess reserves down as far as you can. Were the committee to decide that this is messing with financial conditions more than we want, we'd rather keep more reserves in the system and deal with uh, influencing the economy through rate policy. You bring up a very good point, John, and that is if we continue to see the type of dislocations in the very front end of the curve that were experienced at the beginning of 2018, we might ultimately find a Fed that needs to follow through or needs to conduct another fine-tuning shift in policy rates just to keep the front end functioning appropriately. How do you think the Fed would be able to pull off such a change while still maintaining an on-hold stance? Are, are you referring to the technical adjustment in IOER? Yes. Yeah. And so one of the important nuances with that that occurred back in June was the committee was very explicit. They don't want to try to deal with explaining we're cutting rates, but we're not actually cutting rates. So they had said they have a strong preference to do that technical adjustment with IOER, whereby they raise IOER only 20 bips when they raise the target range 25. They'd prefer to only do that at moments where they're actually raising rates rather than cut. It's also worth mentioning that in one of the previous minutes, the there had even been a discussion about an extraordinary overnight adjustment to IOER mid-meeting. Both of those strike me as potential policy options, but the communication challenge around them is a lot steeper than we might realize. So rather than do something like try to cut IOER all of a sudden and then have to explain to everybody why that's not actually cutting rates, or they would have to cut it mid-meeting and imagine all the headlines and the financial press around that, it seems that there are other lower-hanging fruit options to deal with this, including either cease balance sheet runoff or, you know, I've even heard some discussion about reintroducing some other policy tools, such as a repo facility, which would take some of the excess collateral out of the system and put reserves back in, the opposite of the current ONRP. And so all of that taken together into consideration going into the January and the March meeting, how does that shape the view on the curve and yields in outright terms in terms of the, the distribution around moves you're expecting coming up? Well, I continue to think that any further curve flattening is going to be a function of the Fed reintroducing the idea that a meeting, whether it's June, September, December, or any of the other meetings in between, is actually live and there's a chance for a rate hike. You'll get the curve to flatten on that. That's the first order flattening. At some point, this cycle will run its course and the, we'll see an actual slowdown that could risk a recession, and then there'll be a grab for duration that will flatten the curve from that perspective, even if it is a relatively short-lived flattening. More immediately, 
twos have made it very clear that they're unwilling to trade through effective Fed funds for very long. So I think that we have a solid lower bound for two-year yields that is roughly uh, 241, let's call it. Further out the curve, we have an entirely different set of risks. 10 and 30-year yields are trading off of global fundamentals. And given what is going on with China, given what is going on with uh, Europe at this moment, I think that we will also continue to have a solid ceiling in the case of any more significant backup in rates. Turning back to the meeting for a second, one of the things I'll certainly be expecting is Powell to emphasize a flexible and data-dependent nature in Fed policy going forward. That would be consistent with the recent thematic discussions. However, the shutdown obviously complicates this as a lot of data has been delayed. So it, it turns out it's, it's a little bit difficult for the central bank to be deeply data-dependent in a world with less data than they'd otherwise prefer. Yeah. And that's Obviously, a lot of the data releases have been delayed, but we still get a lot of the labor data. We still get some of the homes data and NFP, probably most importantly. The Department of Labor is still open, so that includes the BLS, which publishes NFP, the unemployment rate, and average hourly earnings, while the Commerce Department is closed, and that's the census as well as the BEA. So things like retail sales and durable goods are going to continue to be delayed, postponed until we kind of get a breakthrough on the shutdown front. What is your take on this idea of alternative measures for economic activity? Obviously, half of the data isn't, or more than half the data isn't being published. Uh, What else should we be looking at? So there are a couple other things that we can be watching, one of which, you know, we're certainly bond guys, we're not equities guys, but earnings data and commentary coming out does at least provide a snapshot into so into how some of the major corporates are viewing the sector. As Ben mentioned, we certainly get a certain reads, including NFP, which is obviously a big one, as well as wage data. So ballpark, we kind of know what direction the ship is still going. And then the other one I'd mention is the whole world isn't shut down. And we're getting a lot of global data still coming in as normal, albeit, uh, especially on the growth front, some of it looks increasingly ominous. This does, at least in my mind, this begs the question, what happens when the data comes back and we get this big set of data releases and then try to figure out what that all actually means for the domestic economy. My initial intuition is going to be that we will look at some of the big data moves and we might see a repricing. The repricing could be more significant than we've seen off of economic data over the course of the last two or three months. But frankly, I think that It will ultimately be dismissed as old information. And obviously, there's going to be questions about the quality of the collection, questions about what type of estimates the appropriate agencies were using during these periods. So I think that it will, to a large extent, we might actually be just losing this data. Yeah, I think that's right. And the I like the losing phrase because one of the arguments about about the shutdown is the economic impact is quite limited. And historically, that's been true because it's been short. And there's this idea, oh, well, federal government, federal employees will get their paychecks back. It's kind of just a weird accounting thing and a a huge, huge imposition for a lot of these households. But that's not necessarily true for everybody. And particularly some of the contractors, they don't 
get back pay. So they lose compensation for that period. That's a bigger hit to GDP. And the way I like your phrase of losing it versus just kind of moving it back and forth, getting an updated read, it'll be important to keep that as a nuance and in interpreting both the data as well as trying to think what the potential impact of this shutdown, which doesn't have any obvious end, may be. One of the other aspects that I find myself worried about in this regard is manufacturing confidence was already waning. Business confidence overall is going to take a hit as a result of the shutdown. And we've just recently seen that play through to consumer confidence via the most recent University of Michigan print. I think that there is a solid argument that once we get through the shutdown, enough damage will already be done to confidence to swing the pendulum of economic activity further toward the downside. Do you, you know, we're not political analysts as, as much as we like might to think that we are. Do you see any potential compromise or deal coming out that could bounce consumer confidence back? I think that a deal which is accompanied by a either a big infrastructure rebuild, a tax cut 2.0 that actually puts money back in the hands of the consumer could really help. I also think that the downside is more significant insofar as any deal that simply kicks the can to match with what we're all assuming will be another uh, debt ceiling debate later this year will be, be more problematic, certainly for the bond market, uh, and presumably flow through to equities. And that gets that cycle back with consumer confidence. Speaking of kicking the can down the road, debt limit, all of that, we're still in a large deficit period with a huge amount of net marketable issuance coming out of the U.S. Treasury. And uh, for context, the Treasury is going to give their next refunding statement on Wednesday. Ben, you closely watch supply. Is there anything you're uh, looking for? Yeah, I think one of the big differences between 2018 and 2019 is going to be the steady march higher we saw in coupon supply sizes has really hit a hit a plateau and we're not looking for any meaningful increases over the next coming months, coming quarters, whereas most of the volatility I think is going to be focused in the very front end of the curve, namely bills. We saw the introduction of the two month that adds another point on the curve um, where the treasury can meet their borrowing needs. And additionally is the introduction of a new five-year tips, which we're looking in tip space, we're looking for another 30 billion of increase um, with the questions on the on the scheduling and exact timing and settlement of that uh, to be answered in the next quarters. Within the details, the questionnaire that the Treasury Department sent primary dealers, there was also the question posed of how advisable SOFR-linked issuance would be in the future. So this came out of last quarter's back, where uh, there was a deep dive into SOFR, how the market's evolving. And one of the potential thoughts is if the U.S. Treasury started issuing SOFR-linked issuance, that could help deepen the market. We're a little bit skeptical of that, at least for now. And one of the reasons is Treasury's mandate, if you will, is to fund the government at the least risk-adjusted cost over time to the taxpayer. It's not necessarily to help deepen the market. Certainly, the introduction of a U.S. Treasury product that had linked to SOFR would help with hedging needs, would help 
deepen a lot of the derivatives trading around this, increase futures volume, dot, dot, dot. However, we would caution against diving into this pool too early, though we are encouraged that at least the idea is being studied. This would help make sure that a lot of the different primary dealers think about the issue that inside the U.S. government, people are really understanding the nuances and ins and outs of the different product. But we wouldn't expect and we don't expect any big announcement to come out. It's more background preparation for something that may or may not happen in the future. Thank you both. That's uh, that's really good context for what's to come in the market. And for those interested, please feel free to reach out and submit questions or topics for discussions on future episodes. So Ian, even with the government still closed, we get supply, employment data, and most importantly, the FOMC meeting. What's your take? In the week ahead, one of the primary themes is obviously going to be uncertainty. Uncertainty not only on the policy front, but also with the economic data, both domestically and abroad. In the week just past, we got a degree of clarity on the ECB. We heard from a number of officials, some of whom are potentially the next presidents of the ECB, that it's way too early to start considering hiking rates in 2019. It's an interesting context to be sure, but domestic monetary policy will take the focus this week. The Fed's biggest debate is whether or not they're going to signal that they have paused in January. We think that there's some significant upside to including the word pause or patience in the forward-looking language, Whether they do it or not is an entirely different question. Our logic is, if you introduce it now, it gives the market a placeholder, which if you eventually remove, will be a clear signal to the market that tightening is going to begin again. The question then is, does the Fed want to lock themselves into either six months or nine months of being on hold at this meeting? Or will they save that for March? If they save it for March, then I think that will materially decrease the chance that they get more than one rate hike off in 2019, if even that. The other big Fed issue this week is the balance sheet. There's been a lot of chatter about the optimal size of excess reserves and a debate about whether or not the Fed is willing to be more flexible in the current pace of SOMA roll-offs. This topic has recently received a great deal of press attention, and for that reason, we'd expect at least some cursory acknowledgement of this, either within the statement itself or at the press conference. Keeping in mind, this will be the first ever January post-FOMC press conference. No GDP data this week, a bit troubling, particularly for an economy that is so clearly beholden to consumption. We haven't seen retail sales, we haven't seen personal spending, and we'll miss the fourth quarter real GDP print. Any expectations for a strong holiday spending season to translate into significant growth in the fourth quarter will have to be delayed for the time being. This week also offers a truncated supply schedule. We have choose five sevens along with a ton of bill issuance all of which will hit the market very early in the week. On the margin, we'd expect that to contribute to any flattening bias. One of the trades that we've been pondering is a forward entry into a twos-fives flattener 
based on the idea that the Fed needs to come in pretty dovish for the start of 2019 and skewing those odds to the more dovish side, we'd expect there to be a risk of a knee-jerk steepening in twos, fives, which we ultimately expect will be a fade because at the end of the day, the Fed is unwilling to take rate hikes throughout all of 2019 off the table, even if the futures market is currently pricing that in. In the 10-year sector, the 255 level, which represents the low yield mark for 2019, is an obvious target in the event of a bullish run. On the other side, there is an opening gap between 277 and 278 that will represent significant support in the event that a more hawkish outlook is offered by Powell. That's our take. For those of you who haven't discovered the off-label use of our podcast as a cure for insomnia, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. 
Female and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.